You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. We're really delighted to be hosting this debate in partnership with Mercy Corps on the pros and cons of merging international NGOs. I'm Sara Pantuliano, I'm one of the um, executive, acting executive directors of the I'm looking for my fellow acting executive director, but he's not in the room. Um, and I'm really delighted to be hosting this discussion because this is an issue that is growing in importance in the sector. This hotly debated. You can see the number of people in the room, and we have an overflow room, so clearly it's attracting a lot of attention very early in the morning in London. Um, we really want to discuss what are you know, the benefits and risks of consolidating some of the biggest players in the humanitarian system, you know, international NGOs, and there are many representatives I see today in, in the room and, of course, with me on the panel. The question has been gaining increasing traction because, of course, INGOs in particular have come under a lot of scrutiny because of their increasing competition, you know, lack of coordination. Competition that some feel as almost destructive and you know unnecessary duplication, and this is particularly a problem in you know crowded space like post disasters um, environments or you know highly fragile contexts where we see you know particularly protective crises a proliferation of of actors. So it's a proposition that warrants attention, but it's also a complex and potentially controversial um, prospect. So what we thought we would do this morning is to try to unpack the debate and really look you know, in greater detail at some of the, you know, the fundamental issues that we need to, um, to analyze. So what are really the potential prospects for aid effectiveness? What are the possible consequences on the so-called localization um, of aid? Um, and what are the potential effects of you know, the NGO relationships with the public? So we'll have three rounds of debates around that, and then I'll open it up to, um, to the floor. But, and, and we have a big online audience that I welcome um, as well. For those in the room, please put your phones on silence, but do tweet. We are live tweeting the event. <laughs> the hashtag is RemakeAid, so we want to generate you know, a passionate and intense conversation online as well. But let me introduce our, um, our speakers today. I'm delighted to, first of all, introduce um, the uh, Permanent Secretary for the Department of International Development and former British PR Permanent Representative to the UN, Matthew Rycroft. Matthew, it's a pleasure to have you with us. I'll give Matthew the floor in a second for his uh, keynote address. But with me on the panel, to my immediate right, I have Simon O'Connell, who is uh, the Executive Director of Mercy Corps, has 20 years' experience in a lot of different countries around the world, um, really trying to always think of innovative partnerships, particularly in fragile environments, and now we can do what we do you know, better. Um, further to my right is uh, Amanda Mokwashi, who is the Chief Executive of Christian Aid. Amanda has a similarly long and distinguished career in, uh, in the sector, but with a particular focus on women leadership, civic engagement, and volunteering. Um, uh, next to Amanda, we have uh, Nusra Ismail. I'm really delighted to have Nusra because she's traveled the, far the farthest to come and be with us. Nusra is the acting director of the Somalia NGO Consortium, which gathers more than 70 um, international and uh, national NGOs. And you know, she's worked for more than 10 years in the sector, including as uh, the country director for Oxfam in Somalia. 
And last but not least, Jonathan Brooker, who is the head of Solidarité International in, uh, in the UK. Um, Jonathan has worked in a lot of different crises, humanitarian crises around the world, you know, big major humanitarian responses. So, so you can see a wealth of experience and insights on the panel. But Matthew, would you mind setting the scene for us? Why is this debate so critical and timely for the sector? Thank you very much, uh, to Sarah. Uh, thank you very much to uh, ODI and Mercy Corps for inviting me to this event, and uh, well done for attracting such a, uh, a brilliant panel and such a large audience. So it's very great to see so many people here, and, and I'm sure um, following on online as well. Um, as Sarah said, I'm Matthew Rycroft, the Permanent Secretary at the Department for International Development. And the first thing to say is I think it's important for DFID not to have a view on precisely how many NGOs should there be in the sector. So I'm not going to answer that question literally, but I am going to briefly make the case for why the sector should be as strong as possible uh, and full of uh, as many high-quality NGOs uh, as possible. Uh, and that case, I suppose, is blindingly obvious, uh, which is that there's a super big job uh, to do out there. Uh, and we, DFID, require a vibrant civil society sector in this country and in the countries that we're operating in uh, as our delivery partners, uh, as champions, as advocates, uh, as innovators, uh, and, and so many other roles as well. So that's the case that, that, that I'll be making. Uh, I don't think, by the way, that this debate should be limited to the humanitarian sector, although I can see that that's a sort of where it has started. And talking to the panellists earlier, it does sound as though the debate is a bit more advanced in that part of the sector than in, than in everywhere else. But what I'm talking about is the totality of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, uh, which, broadly speaking, can be summarised under the five Ps of people, planet, prosperity, partnerships, all underpinned by peace. And those are the five uh, big things that the SDGs uh, seek uh, to do by 2030, uh, and they are the five big things that DFID uh, seeks to do uh, by 2030. Uh, and we've got a sixth one in our new um, uh, single departmental plan, which is being launched this week, uh, which is a cue for quality, making sure that everything uh, that we do, this is a big Rory Stewart passion, uh, is is, uh, is done in a high-quality, uh, impactful way. So I don't think there are any easy solutions uh, to this question about uh, consolidation. If there were, <laughs> we wouldn't be having the debate. Uh, we're having the debate because it's difficult. Uh, I think we should ask ourselves, are the, are, are the experiences from other walks of life, particularly from business on mergers and acquisitions, do they point to... Uh, any particular answer to this question? I don't think that they do. You know, a merger or an acquisition is not always uh, the right answer. Quite often, uh, they are uh, very expensive and they don't always uh, succeed. Um, on the other hand, it is striking. I don't know if this, is, if this statistic is apocryphal or not, but someone yesterday told me that um, the number of NGOs seeking to be involved in delivering aid in Nepal after the earthquake uh, was 7,000. I don't know if that, if that is an apocryphal number uh, or not, but even if it's only half that, I mean, that is an extraordinarily large number, uh, which would possibly suggest that a bit of consolidation might not be a bad idea. Um, I think there are five big things um, that we should think about in seeking to answer the question. Just to repeat, I'm not myself planning to answer the question, but I hope that these five things might give a framework uh, for the panel uh, and for all of us uh, collectively uh, to, to answer the question ahead. And the first is about money. If you think about um, the finances, 
and you think in particular about the drive um, to generate income that so many uh, charities, that so many NGOs, you know, must spend so much of, of your time on. Uh, what does that what does that do to the to the size of the, of the organisation, and what does that relentless quest for um, sustainable income mean in terms of uh, the number of organisations in the sector? Um, and in particular, are there unintended consequences of that drive uh, that might get in the way of quality of of delivery? And of the next thing I'm going to talk about, uh, which after money, is trust. If you think about trust in the sector, particularly today, you know, a big day for, uh, uh, for Oxfam with the Charity Commission report coming out. You know, I think all of us should be thinking about what does it take uh, to rebuild, to regain, and then to retain uh, trust between public opinion in this country and countries like ours, uh, and the organisations which are seeking uh, to do so much good in the world, and which are necessary uh, to, do, to do good in the world. I think that we've really collectively had a bit of a wake-up call over safeguarding. Um, and uh, again, I don't think there's any simple direct correlation between the number of organisations in the sector and the level of trust, but clearly there is some sort of relationship. Uh, between the quality uh, of the sector and, and the level of trust. The third thing to think about is, um, in the jargon, the localization agenda, or to put into normal words, how to make sure that in the countries that we are seeking to support and to deliver, uh, to, to help implement the sustainable development goals in, you know, clearly it makes sense to have a strong, vibrant civil society sector there as well uh, as in our countries, and how do we, how do, we do that? Um, and, and how do we make sure that we are supporting, broadly speaking, smaller, more local NGOs in all of our work? Again, starting with the humanitarian, but thinking more broadly across the whole of the development uh, sector as well. Um, fourthly, and related to that localization agenda, is thinking about beneficiaries, thinking about the direct link with the people we are seeking to serve and to support. Uh, they clearly must be at the heart of everything that we do. And let's face it, I don't think that they have been sufficiently at the heart of everything that all of us do uh, in the uh, recent past. And potentially, there is uh, a natural sense of the bigger an organization gets, the easier it is to sort of forget, at some level, the people who that organization has been set up to serve. So I think, again, an, an interesting question as NGOs, or some NGOs, get bigger is how do, how do they retain that direct link um, to the beneficiary? I certainly know from a DFID perspective, uh, and let's face it, DFID is a large organization in the sector, that it can be quite difficult for us always uh, to remember the beneficiaries and always to put them at the heart of our decision making. Uh, and the fifth thing to be thinking about is diversity. Um, strong, uh, strongly important for its own sake, but also, uh, in my view, a driver of innovation in the sector. So. Clearly, if, if one were a fan of consolidation and you took it to, to the extreme and you had only a very, very small number of NGOs, then, as a minimum, you would be uh, losing something uh, in terms of, of, uh, of innovation and you'd be losing something in terms of diversity. Um, that said, the number uh, of civil society organisations overall has grown hugely, just in the UK. It's grown from 50,000 to over 160,000 uh, in the last uh, generation. Uh, in the market is literally flooded 
uh, with charities, some of them very small, doing very, very uh, particular things. So I think you know, another question for, the, for this debate is whether that sort of spread uh, of very small organisations has, um, has, has got out of control. That's not to say that very small grassroots charities don't have an important role to play, just in the mm. balance of things, you know, where, should we, where should we be looking in order to really maximise the, the overall impact and the overall quality uh, of the sector. So I think if you put those five things together, the money, the trust, the local NGOs, civil society, uh, the beneficiaries, uh, and sort of diversity and innovation, I think that, you know, if we could answer that question, really maximise the quality of the culture of the sector as a whole, then I think the answer to this question about uh, consolidation will come out. The final thing to say, uh, perhaps you should have said it at the beginning, just a word about definitions. When I talk about consolidation, I don't mean what I take should be happening anyway, which is you know, making sure that two different NGOs working in a particularly difficult place should be cooperating on a you know, single way to do security or potentially a single way to use technology. That, to me, is not consolidation. That is sort of good common-sense cooperation. I would very much hope that that is happening everywhere, and if it isn't, got a bigger problem than I thought. Uh, what I mean by consolidation is actually merging um, different organisations into each other to have a smaller number. And with that, back to you, Sarah. I look forward to co commenting on the, on the debate to come uh, at the end of it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Matthew. Those are really important points, and I will come back to you at the end you know, to, to hear your reflections on the debate. Uh, let me just pick on one of the, the five points you've outlined, because I think Reflecting on the perspective of the people that NGOs were set up to serve is particularly critical and I'm hoping that we can have this debate today with their view in mind because often debates that we hold in London or you know, sort of in other places in the north are um, devoid of that perspective. So um, um, it would be important to think you know, in what way this consolidation debate um, is important to improve the way in which we operate um, for the people that we are supposed you know, to Serve. And so let's let's start the debate. Um, Someone, I'll come to you first because you know you've been um, active in in this debate, and I want to come to you particularly with the angle of aid effectiveness and uh, whether you know really consolidating you think can increase the efficiency of NGOs, or are we going to have more of the same just in bigger chunks, you know, with big organisations, but still actually not delivering as efficiently and as uh, perhaps appropriately as possible. Great, yeah, thank you very much, Sarah, and thank you, Matthew, very much. We um, recognise that DFID aren't going to take an opinion on this, and we welcome your r r remarks there and creating some further space and appetite for what I do feel is a really, really, really important conversation. And, you know, absolutely, I have been kind of poking, poking away at it uh, a little bit recently because I feel somewhat passionate about it, and um, I would want to put out there First and foremost, you know, look, this is a complex, uh, complex subject matter, and um, you know, sort of three-minute panel slots. It's not very easy to convey all that complexity or 800-word uh, op-ed. So I don't want to come across as flippant and um, uh, give the sort of impression that I've got all the answers to this. It's it's mega complex. That's the first thing. And then secondly, um, we're having this conversation at an extraordinary time of huge, huge, uh, widespread humanitarian need you know, 150 million almost people in need of that humanitarian assistance and 2 billion living in fragility, conflict and uh, violence-affected uh, environments. So 
our work has never been more important, and we're doing extraordinary work, um, you know, all of us, all our organizations in different ways, in many, many different environments. That being said, um, some things need to change. So I thought I'd just offer a few reflections on the feedback I've got from those that we reached out to whilst preparing for this, um, this debate. First thing interesting, a lot of people said, yeah, um, it's great to happen. The system is clearly, clearly broken. And I was one of those people. I was fortunate enough to be at the World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul. In, um, uh, it's over three years ago now, and the grand bargain and the commitments we all made. And I do think particularly around things like localization, we haven't, we haven't done enough. We're, we're, we're behind on the targets that we set, and something needs to change. And that's come through, and it's sort of you know, a testament to why there's so many people in this room and online. We recognize, and I, I, I thought maybe we could do a show of hands of who thinks that some things need to change. We won't, we won't do that, but I do think we all, um, in our different ways, recognize that the system is, is uh, not only broke in many ways, uh, but also largely broken. And I think sometimes on the NGO side, we have a tendency to sort of go, you know, you... You UN lot, you, um, you know, you're the broken part of the system, but I think we um, as NGOs need to kind of own some of that brokenness and, and, and be open to some uh, disruption. That was the first bit. Then the second bit was why, why focus on this? There's so much else going on. We don't want to you know, divert attention from the extraordinary levels of need and the importance of what we do. And I think that, you know, that has come through quite clearly that there is some some concern that if we debate this or overly debate it, we're not going to be talking about other really, really important things, you know, safeguarding being sort of top of the mind uh, this morning. So we want to be sure that we have space for this conversation, but we don't want to take up so much space for it that we detract from other important areas. Then there's this bit about, well, look, you know, what about small is beautiful or what about uh, diversity, as you said, Matthew, Matthew, or what about innovation? On the innovation one, I kind of chuckle a little bit because when I think of innovation, I sometimes think, you know, Google are kind of an innovative organization still, right? They've got their 10% and their, you know, space for innovation. They're also kind of a big organization, right? We at Mercy Call, we're annual global revenue around 500 million uh, dollars. We're nothing like Google, um, and we pride ourselves on the importance of that innovation. So I don't worry if Mercy Corps was a bit bigger <coughs> or if it was consolidated in, in with some other organizations that we would lose that space for, for innovation. Because it was efficiency. Yeah, efficiency, but also, and then the, the point around diversity, and, you know, we need lots, but Matthew, <coughs> some of the numbers he's thrown out, number of organizations here in the UK, I can't remember, I had some stats, Seven. I think there's someone from um, Alnap here, Four four thousand in the in the wider system. Yeah. South Sudan, two hundred and fifty plus NGOs. Nazri, you'll tell us how many in Somalia. There are a lot of us, and of course we want you know different types of organisations. But I do think there are too many. And then that leads me to the point. The other question, which has come up, well, what do you mean? Do you mean like you know centralised level? Do you mean at a country level? Do you mean everywhere? I mean really, first and foremost first and foremost in the most fragile environments, those protracted crises, those Eastern DRCs, 25 years post-Rwanda genocide, where we've got such extensive humanitarian need and where NGOs are at times often tripping up over one another. And that's where the needs are greatest. That's where we're not on track to re reach the SDGs. That's where uh, more needs to happen. 
and then there's a big question that's come up about, yeah, well, how do you do it? And that's where we need the big brains of folks at ODI and others to engage in a work stream, which we hope that some uh, donors and other partners will invest in and support to really generate that evidence around would indeed uh, less small to medium-sized organizations, particularly in the most fragile environments, would that uh, correlate with greater impact. And that's where we on the NGO side, including at a governance level, including with our boards, need to step up and put some targets in place around concretely, what are we going to do in this area? And then the last thing that's sort of come up quite a bit is, um, but look, we have loads of consortia already. We're already coordinating more, more than ever. And I, um, Sarah said, I spent many, many years overseas, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. And I've engaged a lot in those consortia mechanisms, and they're really, really important. Um, and there are more of them, and they are certainly generating efficiencies. But I wanted to give one example. Recently, I was in um, Iraq. I got out into Mosul. It's absolutely devastated, as many of us will know. Folks will tell us it's going to cost $50 billion, $50 billion to reconstruct. Mosul, we lead, and it's fabulous support from the British government, from DFID, it's the cash consortium. One of our commitments at the World Humanitarian Summit was to deliver 25% uh, of our humanitarian assistance through cash. We're now at 40%. Great. It's a consortium. I won't give you the names of the other four NGOs who are in it, but it's terrific, and it's big impact, and it is indeed more efficient. Last few years, through that program, we've touched the lives of 750,000 people in and around Mosul. It's just fabulous, big impact program. It's you know externally appraised, it's got good metrics. And you know what? All of those five NGOs in it, we've all got our country directors, we've all got our security coordinators, we've all got our procurement people, there's less procurement on the cash side. But all of that, and I did a kind of quick top line um, number crunching thing yesterday, yesterday as I was coming into London. I calculate costs roughly $500,000 a year to run those senior leadership teams of those five organizations in that one context. So $2.5 million for five of them, yeah? Do we really need five country directors, five finance directors, five HR managers, five security focal points, five procurement people? Do we really, really need all of those? And if we only needed one, okay, that would generate just on one program, and British government gives us 18 million pounds for that program, touching lives of hundreds of thousands of people, it's a big impact. But if we only needed one, that would save in one context, $2 million a year. And probably we don't quite need one. We may need a bit more than that, right? But imagine if we saved a million dollars in that one context, a million dollars. And then if we push that out into 10 other really fragile environments. That's $10 million a year in savings. Just through one mechanism like that, $10 million. And then imagine if we said those organizations don't also need five executive teams who cost a little bit more again, a bit more centralized, a bit more removed from those contexts. Imagine the savings you could generate through that kind of approach. And then imagine what you could do with that money through investments in safeguarding mechanisms, through investments in greater support to local organizations, through investments into generating, Matthew, again, your point around evidence and impact. And then imagine what we could do as a community 
if we communicated out more effectively the extraordinary importance of our work in places like Mosul and Eastern DRC with concrete, hard evidence through a more value-for-money approach. And imagine what that would do to, in some little way, restoring some trust in the sector where less than <coughs> half of people now have confidence in our work. I'll stop there. I need to stop Sorry. here, otherwise we can have a debate. But okay. this is a, you know, a, an important strawman that you put out there. If you know, we had less, we would have a lot, of, you know, a lot more money to support people. That would mean our impact you know, would multiply. Amanda, Nusser, Jonathan, who wants to start? What do you think? Do you, do you agree with that? Um, maybe let me come in. Thank you. Uh, I think three quick uh, points from me, and I'll come at it from a slightly different angle. The, uh, the projections at the moment are that there are going to be over 800 million people living in extreme poverty, that we are not going to be able to meet, um, to, re to take those people out of extreme poverty. That's one. The conversations that we've, uh, we've heard, we've had, um, the demonstrations that we've seen in terms of climate change suggest that actually we're in a bit of a dire street as a, as a global function. If you look at the number of conflicts um, uh, that are emerging all over the place, again, this paints a world that is really broken in terms of the economy, in terms of conflict, and in terms of um, uh, politics. So for me, I think that talking about the numbers of NGOs that are needed to try and fight this somehow becomes a bit of a, of a red herring. I think we need to be talking about the quality of what different development and humanitarian actors are doing. And, uh, and that's where I would really like to focus. That's number one. I think my second uh, point is that um, we have a huge... Um, development and humanitarian systems like the UN um, multilateral agencies. We've got multinational uh, bodies. We've got already in the private sector, in the public sector, we have examples of huge bureaucracies trying to deliver humanitarian and development. I don't think that, you know, they, uh, we should all become one size and one way of working in terms of development. Clearly, um, what we've experienced over the last um, 40 years suggests that uh, you know, it's not, the way we are currently structured, all of us, all humanitarian development actors, has not delivered what we wanted to deliver. And therefore, I don't think that the civil society organizations should become a replica of the UN agencies or should become a replica of the private sector multinational bodies or should become a replica of government. We are different. And the reason that we are different is we're able to connect at a very personal, very individual and very local level. Uh, that means that actually it's not about the money. My last and third point, uh, and I'm happy to come back to this as the debate goes on, is that uh, what we measure, so you know, we're talking about aid effectiveness at the moment. And uh, I would probably like to suggest that in terms of effectiveness, let's move away from transaction costs, from you know, um, those type of efficiencies, understanding it from a money angle. Let's go to what is effectiveness? Let's talk about effectiveness in terms of participation, in terms of democracy, in terms of values, in terms of transformation. And if we're talking about that, and we start focusing on measuring that, 
then I'm telling you that huge bureaucracies will not be able to reach in those corners where it doesn't make money sense, but it makes human sense to go and actually help in terms of humanitarian action and intervention. So for me, I would like to move the conversation that direction. Um, I'm not concerned really about the number of NGOs in the UK, you know, or the number of international. I think the question also that we need to really think about is something that Matthew flagged up uh, right at the end when I think Matthew, you said, um, if we're not collaborating, you would be worried. I think you need to be worried. Uh, because I think what is the nature and quality of our, co of our collaboration when it matters and when it is needed? And I think those are the conversations that we need to be having. I'll stop there to give others a chance, but uh, yeah, happy to come back. Perfect a moment to bring in Nusra and, and really <coughs> see from your perspective, you know, someone is saying we have, if we have less organization, we'll have more money to deliver, we'll do a better job. Amanda is arguing, well, you'll end up with big bureaucracies. That not they won't necessarily do a better job because ultimately it's about the quality of what we do and it's about you know, removing some of the transaction costs. You see this from the ground where you, know, you do have a large number of organizations in, uh, in Somalia. What's your perspective on this? Thank you, yeah, and thanks to ODI and everybody here who's uh, invited us. I think, um, I think my answer is going to be a little bit of both. I think the, the key question underneath this consolidation of having less and maybe having more than in terms of impact. I think in, in, uh, from where I sit in Somalia, in Mogadishu, at a very small uh, location with a lot of security, one um, would think you, you, you would need some kind of change. That's ultimately the, the entity here that we're dealing with. We need change because we're ever more dealing with a change in the way climate uh, affects our communities. We're dealing with change in terms of how governments are showing up and authorities are coming into their proper role, uh, perhaps not to the best uh, way that we would like it as NGOs, but there is a different player at play. And uh, they also have a, a sense and an opinion and I will share some of those later. But I think um, running a consortia uh, of more than uh, 80 members now for the Somalia NGO consortium, which is a mixed fora, I would agree, less would be more. <laughs> when I came into the sector, I, it was a headache uh, to, to convene all of these actors, uh, to put together <coughs> a plan for every drought and flood, every crisis. But um, after a while, come to think of it, actually, I think you know, we have to be ambitious in what we're calling for. And it wasn't necessarily less meetings. Uh, fewer discussions on the same issue. It was a sense that um, for every uh, issue that we were dealing with, we need, it, it was uncertain. Everything we were dealing with, it was uncertain year on to year on. And what we we're dealing with was something that calls for, yes, more nimble, more agile organization models that we haven't seen to date. Um, one of the things that came uh, to me and was very clear is choice. Uh, there is a choice in the matter for communities and how they accept work and, and how they accept to be uh, supported and how they accept um, certain aid. And I think we want to be mindful of that as we're thinking about this discussion in London, is that communities are going to have a choice. I would like to see that choice played out. I think that choice playing out would mean that some NGOs, international or otherwise, they're going to fall out. They might be deemed dead weight. They, their <coughs> business model may not survive in a place like Somalia. So there is a natural way that I think uh, we're gaining um, more forceful NGOs who can work in some of the toughest areas, but may not necessarily be. Fewer, you know, the UN agencies are not as many as the NGOs, um, and yet um, there is a lot of, you know, kind of um, 
diversity of opinion as to how effective or you know efficient they really are on the ground. What would what would change if we had you know sort of fewer NGOs in terms of effectiveness from the perspective of delivering locally? Well, I mean, I think this is why I'm saying it's really important to consider the community's perspective. They may, may, they may want to have more because it takes a certain NGO with a certain value, with a certain power structure, with a certain history and, and, <coughs> and entry point to that uh, country where, you know, it will be a natural self-selection. I also believe we don't need to compare ourselves to the UN. Uh, I really believe that NGOs have a certain um, acceptance rate in Somalia, uh, and we should build on that, and we should have those conversations with the communities to indicate to us what is the future of NGOs in a country like Somalia that is becoming sort of um, slowly coming out of um, a fragile state. <coughs> and so I think um, it, it, it's a number of things, but for me, one of the things I worry about in a consolidated fashion, some of the NGOs' work that we do uh, on the ground, is we're having a lot of issues already with localization, so the more uh, NGOs we have, it, it has actually led to more uh, partnerships, uh, more relationships with local actors. You consolidate, are we also consolidating power? Mm -hmm. I think that's a really big question that we have to struggle with, and we have to say um, we need change, but I'm not sure if, a cons if consolidation is going to be the change. It's going to be the thing that we want. Uh, the second thing I would uh, hearken all of us to think about again is really choice. There are many companies who make brooms. I don't think they're having discussions about consolidation. I think they look at the communities and markets they serve, mm -hmm. and that, lets themselves, uh, that lends itself to a model that will survive. So it's more about surviving uh, and becoming uh, the organization of the future that's going to deal with all these crises, all these countries that are moving either towards fragility or away from fragility, and less about us sort of thinking about what would be easier. It's never going to be easier, whether you have few or more. I think the question that we're dealing with is we need to make a change. Yes, is consolidation it? I'm not convinced. I think we need to put choice in the hands of communities. And then after that, I think we'll see what the model, what the organization, what the ideal number of NGOs are going to be in each country because people are going to participate. I expect people to have a discussion. The people that I've talked to are not really concerned with the number. They're concerned with impact. They're concerned with acceptance. They're concerned with how an organization show, shows up. The best organizations in Somalia that I've seen are not known by their entity or their internationalness or their name. They're actually never heard of because they work through a local partner. And they're not there because they don't have access. Yeah. But their aid is there. Yeah. Thanks, Nusra. Yes, I just want to flag that Nusra has moved us on very neatly to the second part of the debate and the impact <coughs> you know, that any consolidation would have on you know, really enabling humanitarian action to be more locally driven. And you make some very important points as to you know, how this is seen and received and, and the danger of you know, further consolidating powers and alienating. Um, local <coughs> players more, but but I think you know from what I've heard so far, everybody thinks there has to be a level of change, and so thinking in, th in terms of what is the best change and how we achieve it, as we discuss, you know, the how we can improve uh, this drive towards you know making sure that local humanitarian action is you know sort of uh, uh, closer and more locally driven. It's important. Um, Amanda, you want to come on that, and I, on the wide journey, we haven't had a chance to react yet. Yes, no. I was just going to pick up on uh, the question of power or consolidation of power. I think that Nusra was talking about because I think we shouldn't underestimate that, um, especially if what we're talking about is consolidation of international NGOs. Um, that we're pretty quite a number of NGOs are pretty big as they are, and they have got. Um, uh, dis a disproportionate amount of power and influence in the sector. If we consolidate, what we are simply doing is we are re we 
we are going back, retrogressing from that um, redistribution of power to uh, the global south and uh, centralizing it again uh, to, to the global north because that's where the big international NGOs are. And so uh, if we're moving into, uh, into the conversation around localization, I know for us as Christian Aid, I know we've got our personal experience as an organization is working through local partners. When I joined Christian Aid last year, I went on program visits. My first instinct, because I'm hardwired uh, to think brand, I'm hardwired, I've come from the UN, I've come from other organizations. I went in there and I was asking my country officers, how come I can't see Christian Aid's brand? You know, where's the logo? Where's everything? And they say to me, Amanda, we don't do that because we work through local organizations. What we do in terms of local partners is really try to build their capacity. Now, the reason why we're challenged in terms of the grand bargain and localization is also we think that it's just about giving them money so that they can do some work with it. No, it's really looking holistically at the local uh, organization and saying, what is the capacity? Governance, you know, do they have resources? Do they have capability? Where are they going? And then investing <coughs> in that. My last comment on, uh, on, on, on the localization agenda is, if we think that development mm -hmm. is cheap, then we haven't been paying attention. If we think humanitarian interventions are cheap, we haven't been paying attention. There is no way they're going to be cheap. If they're going to come cheap, then they're not going to last. If we want lasting, sustainable, and clean uh, development, um, and I'm not separating humanitarian and development. That's, my, that's where I'm coming from. Because for me, Amanda, on the ground, if I'm in Malawi, and cycling dire hits, I don't care that you're coming as a humanitarian agency or a development agency. It's I'm impacting me as a whole person. So, you know, we really have to come to grips with the fact that it's going to be expensive, it's going to cost money, it's going to require resources, it's going to require innovation, and it's not just from government, from the private sector, but from private individuals as well, making those connections. And so for me, localization is the answer, but hopefully we come back and talk about quality collaboration, because I think that's where we need to change how we're working with each other. Um, <coughs> to, to deliver to scale. I want to bring you in because I, mean, I know your perspective on this and it would be useful to discuss that. But undoubtedly when you have thousands of partners on the ground, you know, working to support local partners is going to be hard and you know, working efficiently and even collaborating is going to be very hard. So how did, you know, you've, you've worked in many emergencies. I'm sure you've seen these challenges uh, um, firsthand. <coughs> um, I think we all agree that we need to make things more efficient, we need to make things more effective, we need to make them more relevant, they need to be more timely, they need to be more localised um, across the board. Um, I, I think, and you touched on it earlier, Matthew touched on it, early doors we've got to say, are people at the centre of what we're doing? Have we reignited purpose within the sector like we need to? Um, and when we look at the question emerging, what we need to ask is, with diversity and inclusion, are we giving ourselves the tools, opportunity, ammunition to be able to overcome the complex challenges that we face in multiple countries across the globe? I, I worry a little bit if we take an, an isolated example and say, well, if we merge this consortium here, that's more cost efficient. Because effectively what that is is just a, an argument related to the economy of scale in that specific uh, uh, setting. To do that at a global level, what you start to do is, is, for me, create challenges around efficiency, effectiveness, and a really important word that hasn't come up yet, but risk. So 
what I look at is, is effectively this is a sort of technical proposed solution to what is more broadly an adaptive challenge, uh, a challenge that I think we need to understand better uh, and that probably is going to find solutions out of shifts in the culture, attitudes and behaviours of the sector rather than an adaptation or a changing of the architecture uh, of the sector. Um, you know, by merging INGOs, and this has already been touched on quite a lot, what, we, what we're effectively talking about is, is bigger better? Is industrial scale aid going to be more cost efficient and effective? Um, and I would say, in metaphorical terms, it worries me this because it looks like a sort of captain and a crew uh, worried that the, the, the ship is sinking and cutting off the lifeboats in order to reduce the weight. And that doesn't add up. Um, to be very clear, already about 90% of global humanitarian funding is in the hands of the big UN humanitarian agencies and big INGOs, already, now. So the resources are already heavily concentrated. So what I would ask is, with that financing information, do we see uh, a more effective, efficient, timely, predictable, reliable sector? I'm not sure we do. Um, instead, I think what we see is a system where the kind of giants of the sector, um, giants that, speaking candidly, have been plagued by scandals, that have been riddled with toxic working environments, um, that have uh, contributed to an environment where there's more prescriptive donorship, where there's risk aversion, where there's an increased demand for immediate results. We have hyper-regulation coming in, and humanitarian leadership seems to be ever more judged um, and therefore preoccupied with growth, with political influence and competition for resources. So already that model doesn't seem to demonstrate the evidence of efficiency and effectiveness in big aid. Um, these things to me have seriously damaged the sector per se, because once you've got the, the headline organizations facing those types of challenges, the trickle-down effect, like we mentioned earlier, on public trust deficits is serious. Um, so in essence, I think, you know, we do look at this kind of technical argument of economy of scale, but the evidence isn't there to support it. I know that we don't want to get stuck talking about transactional costs, but I haven't seen evidence to suggest that big aid from donor to delivery in terms of transactional cost is more effective or efficient. I just haven't simply seen that evidence. I would be curious if people can propose it. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why, and, and actually somebody mentioned earlier, we already have the UN as the big system, the big aid system. Um, and what do we see there? And I, I, have worked with the UN. What we see is bloated HQs, bloated regional offices. We see high salaries, high benefits. We see multiple layers of manager, managerial uh, staffing. We see laborious and time-consuming systems and procedures. <coughs> and we see massive security, travel, and logistics costs. That's what we see. As you scale down, organizations sort of pitter out a little on those things. So I would say there is generally a lack of evidence to substantiate the claim that big is more efficient in this context. Um, I also think we have to look at what the academic world has provided us with, and that is a lot of information and research around organizational efficiency and behaviors. What comes out from a lot of that is that there are optimal sizes that organizations can function. There is too small to be relevant or significant or have big impact, and there's too big to work, there's too big to function. With that type of understanding, what we, what we start to see is sometimes organizations reach that tipping point where they become ungovernable. Processes get heavy, risk aversion gets more, there becomes an incoherence in the common vision of an organization, sorry, um, and, and they become breeding grounds, the types of behaviors which unfortunately have uh, 
bubbled to the surface in the last years. So what I'm talking about by that is characteristics like nepotism, corruption, harassment, etc. I want to debate on this. Obviously, you have very, very different views, and you work in a, in a much bigger organization where maybe these challenges around bureaucracy do... Um, Can I come in, so, sorry, with the, with the nautical metaphor, which was really good. I see it differently. I see uh, the system as a super tanker going down, and I see plenty of lifeboats, and I see no one using them. I just see we're so stuck in our system of being on the big ship. It's so big that we can't turn it. We keep talking about it. There are lifeboats there, but we need to get in them. We need to deploy them. We need to shift, shift the system. And I like the metaphor very, um, very much. Um, but I also, uh, yeah, but this is the frustration part is we're acknowledging, all of us here, we're acknowledging the system is broken. All of us are clearly immensely proud of what we're achieving and the importance of our work, you know, and scale of need, etc. It's never, never been greater, but we're stuck on so how are we going to shift it? And yet I'm not in any way, in any way advocating for five or even 10 behemoth NGOs out there doing, doing everything. I hear the whole, the PowerPoint is hugely important. But frankly, I just, I refuse to accept that in, and there's a, <coughs> just so many of those environments, it could be parts of South Sudan, it's been a definitely Northeast Nigeria, it's those really difficult environments where there are too many small to medium NGOs who are not able to get to that level of scale of impact, who are not able to generate that amount of evidence, and who are not able to then take the opportunity to replicate what is working in, in other contexts. The premise of my argument is if we free up some resources very explicitly with the intention of then shifting the power dynamic of deploying those resources into those more local organizations, we will get more effective as a system. And that takes all of us, very much inclusive of myself and Mercy Corps, to be open to being disrupted ourselves, to start to walk, walk the walk more, more deliberately ourselves. And I do think there are just too many smaller, medium-sized organizations out there. And I think the evidence backs that, backs that up. And my hope is that what we will do is we will make a commitment with donor support, with investment to generate, and I hear you, Jonathan, clearly there isn't, you know, where, where is the evidence around this? Let's make a commitment from today to generate some of that evidence around an alternative way of structuring ourselves. Sorry, can I just check mm -hmm. something? Yeah. Are you saying that too many small and medium NGOs out there, international, or international working out there? International working out there, international working out there. Because I, I think it's really important to make that, um, to have that clarity. Uh, in quite a lot of countries that we work in, there will be small NGOs, there'll be community-based organizations, um, and there'll be, if they're medium, um, local, or national NGOs, that's good. And some of them will be really big. You have Bangladesh has got one of the world's largest um, NGOs, uh, BRAC. I, I think that it's really important that they see sight of resources capacity and capabilities, right? Um, but I think even for international NGOs, uh, let's, let's talk about UK international NGOs. Mm -hmm. um, there are small NGO, international NGOs that are really specialized and are very creative, very agile, flexible, adaptable, and innovative. Mm -hmm. 
I think for those of us who consider ourselves to be big uh, international NGOs, we need to leave room to work in partnership mm -hmm. with them, collaborate and leverage um, their skills and expertise much more. You know, I, I, w I was in Bolivia. I'm not saying practical action is very small, but I was really impressed to find that in there we were tapping into uh, practical actions, very specific skill on agriculture and farming, right? Because we know that as Christian aid, that's not our strength. But we were able to bring in others and really collaborate. For me, I, I want to talk about, you know, let's move from consolidation to effective collaborations. That's but, clearly a recurring theme around yeah. you know, how yes. we collaborate better, yeah. how we yeah. change our culture. Yeah. I have a, a barrage of questions from the online Sorry, audience. Sorry, give me 30 <laughs> seconds on that, just to be <laughs> really clear. So on the and there's wonderful, wonderful, you know, small boutique, niche, very specialized organization in, in the UK and, mm -hmm. and right around the world. They don't all need to be opening sub offices in Abyei in South Sudan, right? But the tendency is the more you go, okay, let's open a country, let's have the country structure, let's have the cost around it. Let's, let's bring, I mean, most of we have a technical support unit comprised of our various areas of technical expertise. Let's use those kind of technical support areas and provide them to other organizations and let's absorb some others into, into our own structures rather than the big infrastructure on the ground which is so expensive and oftentimes so inefficient. Can I, can I just say, I think, um, yeah, we're, we're coming back to cost a lot and I uh, happen to be of the opinion that, um, and I don't know where the literature is, I think we would love to see the investment in learning about what is the right size, mm -hmm. sure. But I'd also believe that we don't have to wait for the evidence. Clearly, we've gotten so big, not because of evidence, but because of evolution and where we are. <coughs> I'm, I, I can tell you I work for Care International. I would love to see what that Care <coughs> International model was 15, 20 years ago, because it's not the model of today. But I think out of need, out of necessity, they have come to be where they are. It would be good to figure out if they can collapse small, if they can go back, and what would be then the incentive. Um, what we need to do is really figure out again, can we incentivize change without it, without us losing diversity? I think diversity counts for a lot in a place like Somalia where, again, acceptance and, and not being accepted are so high, where risk tolerance is so high and it's a differ differentiating factor. Not every big INGO has the same appetite for risk and the same could be said of a donor. So. I would hate to be in a place uh, where the needs are so high, where access issues are really um, at, a, uh, at a very, very high level, and we have the option of one consolidated NGO, and it gets a letter, and yeah. they're taking out. What That's do you nice. do then? So I think we need to be really smart about how we are positioning these models, not just to save money, but where are the people? <laughs> the people will have a choice. These, the governments that are beginning to really grapple with their role some of them are, you know, taking power to a whole different level than we've seen, are going to also have a choice about which NGOs are going to be able to operate in that country, right or wrong. So I think this is the time to really invest into more, actually, uh, smaller uh, NGOs, not necessarily bigger, <coughs> not necessarily one entity, but also give ourselves the ability to remain alive to these crises that are unpredictable, that are coming back, that are climactic, that are cyclical, and that don't necessarily tell you how to address them. But what are the incentives, I think, for current collaboration? We don't incentivize collaboration very well. We don't incentivize localization very well. We don't incentivize sharing of knowledge very well. I think there's a lot of learning in the sector when I can convene 100 NGOs and see 
their missions are quite the same, their structures are almost entirely the same, but there's something about their output and impact. They look very different because they show up differently in communities, because they have different acceptance rate, because they've been around so long that they're iterating on their processes. So it would be interesting, I think, to look at this not necessarily from a practical perspective of what would be easier for us to implement, but what is the learning telling us? And I think then we can have that conversation. But currently, I, has, I see no problem with Care Mercy Corps being very small. But that seems like an internal discussion, not necessarily a sectoral discussion. This is a really good point on which to open to the audience. I think you've hit the nail on the head there in terms of you know, the incentives and how we shift our culture. And then, yeah, the models, there may be a variety in different countries, but you know, how we make sure that as a sector we really change the way in which we behave generally. And then you know, progressively in some places there may be fewer you know, players on the ground, in others we may need more, but it is the way in which we work and you know, the, the enduring cultural paternalism and competition of the sector that you know, remains the problem in so many contexts. So I was saying I have a huge number of questions online, but I want to start with um, the, the colleagues in the room who have you know, made an effort to be here bright and early. Um, there is a roving mic. When you take the floor, please be brief because, as you can see, there are a lot of people that want to come in. Say who you are, if you are affiliated to any organization, and pose the question briefly. Um, I'll start with the colleague here, and then I'll go to the other side. Please. Can I? Yes, please. Um, thank you very much. Um, really interesting comments from everybody. Um, my name is Dr. Selma Bassi. I'm the CEO of eWorldwide Group. Um, I, I think I, I, I can see com completely different views being presented for different situations. And I think we have to look at the country that we're in and the crises that we're addressing. And I, I think, to Simon's point, I completely agree with you, the, the fat belt of the duplication. I work at a lot in northern Nigeria, northeast Nigeria, and uh, we see all these big international NGOs at the, at the border, nobody going into the no-go high-risk areas where we need to have access. So I, in my mind, I see uh, the great need for people like DFID and other donor agencies to create the incentive immediately for collaboration and the sharing of information and the administration belts that could be taken out and help us actually have targeted interventions that would be more effective. That's one. So I, I totally agree with this model. But I, I kind of see a line. One is the operationalization and the organization coming into a particular country, then coming down to the, the next level, which is actually implementing the interventions and monitoring and evaluation and having the access to make sure that there is a line that is defined with a collaboration with the local NGOs and the smaller, most more capable um, NGOs with the specific skills that are required. Because there's many, many uh, success stories are very few, failures are very high. And unqualified, untrained, without the effectiveness, are given the money to go in and do the interventions. And it actually demoralizes the local communities that are small CSOs that really want to play. So I, I see that there's three things we need to do. One is the consolidation and the, the you know, cutting out the, the wastage at the top to Simon's point of Mosul's example, that, but not keeping one company, the, it's the integrated company, the collaboration framework with the joint incentives. Then the next is the NGOs. And the third is the clusters that we need to create at the grassroots with the community so that we can balance and share the power, making sure we don't have one single individual organization in control. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
mentioned that I have to square this circle because I'm hearing that there's a massive opportunity. Well, there are hugely uh, valuable contributions being made at local level, which we've seen in all the countries we've worked in. And of course, there's this challenge of the large international development agencies. What I haven't heard here is a discussion around the instruments. And I think one of our trustees, Anne May Chang, who you know well from Mercy Corps, um, has written an excellent book that summarizes how some of the instruments that we can use in terms of enabling organizations right at the local level to be more agile and to develop iterative approaches to local solutions. So maybe the question is, what instruments for funding collaboration or for pooling funding or for looking at alternatives that are more outcomes-based and effectiveness-oriented rather than predetermined programmatic approaches to funding is where the levers need to be pulled rather than any structure or numbers or consolidation, et cetera, in order to enable locals, local organizations that are effective to grow and mature and deliver at an increasing impact. Thank you. And Sam? <coughs> Um, well, thank, thanks for all the panelists. My name is Sharina Tarbosi McCarthy, and I'm an interim senior research fellow over here. Uh, I sit in HPG, the Humanitarian Policy Group. And my question to you is, I've noticed how little the political sphere, uh, the political context, has been discussed in your uh, presentations. And I think it is like the elephant in the room uh, when it comes to um, uh, international NGOs, the practice of international NGOs versus um, local NGOs. And I was wondering, as we were discussing the issue of consolidation at the level of practice and thinking about efficiency, what about consolidation at the level of voice? Uh, what role do international NGOs have to play in terms of navigating that a very unwelcoming political and, and more often than not very charged and complex uh, political context um, in a way that would protect uh, uh, local NGOs and give them more space um, uh, to act and uh, to meet the needs of um, uh, the, uh, local communities. Uh, because what, what we're witnessing right now, I mean, look at Sudan, for instance, Somalia, is a those are very charged uh, political contexts and local NGOs are, um, are more harmed. I think they're more affected uh, by the complexity of the situation. International NGOs always have more protection um, so what, what do you think about consolidating, further consolidation at the level of, of voice and advocacy um, versus um, just uh, at the level of practice? Let me just take a couple from the online questions. I'll do another round, but I want to bring in some of the online questions. <laughs> Loads, and they're all you know, very good. Um, a question from Monica Brajescu, who is the director of programs at the, at the DEC. Having recognized that we need to free up some resources and shift, shift power dynamics, what do each of the panelists see as their role and the added value of their own organizations in the next decade and how are they planning to change? And a very direct one to you, Simon, from Sean Laurie at the Start Network. Excellent points from all speakers. Cheeky question for Simon. Would, who would Mercy Corps merge with? <laughs> <laughs> and, 
Um, and a few others, we have Ariane Heenkamp, the Director of Programs at the Dutch Refugee Foundation. He has a number of questions, but one for Jonathan says, Jonathan, um, in my view, it is a big concern today, particularly the growing risk aversion of humanitarian organizations and donors. How would further consolidation impact on this risk aversion, um, do you think? And finally, several questions from uh, um, Simon Maxwell, our former executive director, um, a decade or so ago, um, says if some NGOs, large or small, are poor quality on one or more dimensions, who do they, how do they survive? Why do they survive? Uh, who is evaluating them? Who is funding them? And why aren't poor evaluations driving change? Um, this sounds to me like a bad case of market failure. Who wants to start? I'm happy to give some of those a go. Um, Maybe combining the the sort of northeast Nigeria and the and the BRAC one, I think there's so I think a context like northeast Nigeria, extraordinary levels of insecurity and risk. And I believe, you know, two point two, two point four million displaced people by the horrors of Boko Haram. So huge, huge need. Um and, and by the way, I'd never say wastage in Iraq, and mostly I would say just I think there's opportunities to be, to be more, more, more efficient. So I think there's something around the complexity of those environments, the risk, and the increasingly, and quite rightly so, onerous donor requirements on us all operating in those, those contexts. So the need for robust monitoring and evaluation, the need for hotlines, um, uh, the need for accountability mechanisms, uh, the increased need for anti-fraud and corruption uh, mechanisms, et cetera, et cetera. Frankly, all of that comes with, comes with cost. And there's only a certain number of organizations, frankly, at the moment, that can kind of meet all those increasingly onerous, onerous requirements. So linking that to the sort of brat bit around what do you do? Well, you start with being clear on what is, what is your role what is the purpose of your organization? What are your skill sets? Where are your areas of expertise? And what do you have to offer? And then being really clear around, that's what you can do. And then maybe there are a whole host, not maybe, in fact, there are, of course, a, a whole number of organizations better placed in many, many contexts on the ground to do the delivery of the services. And many of us kind of bigger INGOs are moving more and more to sort of um, systems focused approaches to looking more widely at opportunities to build resilience even in those really really fragile environments and that's where you bring in the local uh, local partners be they local ngos or um local government or or private private sector so that's sort of how i would answer that and then i'd link to the voice the voice point which is a really important one as well. again being clear around what is the role of the international NGO, what is the role of the local organization? It may well be in many, many contexts, the local NGO or local organization is the delivery agent. And you're absolutely right in you know, many contexts. I lived in Ethiopia over a decade ago when the new CS, um, civil society law was coming into place, really, you know, really squeezing local civil society. Thank goodness it's moving in a different direction now. It's just terrific. But in those contexts, they don't have voice. So maybe the international organization and organizations together can more effectively elevate or amplify those voices in contexts both in country and elsewhere. Um, who would we merge with? You know what? We would look for an organization that's <laughs> operating in a, um, 
really, really fragile environment because that's, you know, that's where we focus. That's where we think we're, you know, failing towards our targets around the SDGs, etc. That's where there's 2 billion people living in those contexts. That's, you know, the 800 million statistics, etc., etc., etc. And there's a few. There's, you know, you could put out there IRC and Mercy Corps, um, you know, two somewhat similar multi-purpose organizations. I don't know if there's IRC folks in the room or, or online. But yeah, yeah. But no. But seriously, you know, w w why not come together and generate all those efficiencies at a central level and around the world where we work? We're the kind of grand challenge. You know, some of us know IRC won the MacArthur Grand Challenge idea. But why not? Why didn't Diffid, M Matthew, launch a grand challenge idea around around some of this? Why don't some of those big big philanthropic endeavors put money into a consolidation stream and incentivize, if not push, us as a community to walk the walk around generating more efficiencies. Wait, let's be brief so we can take another round. Uh, okay, um, thank you. Um, Salma, I want, I think you, you were not asking a question, so I won't um, comment on that. I think on the predetermined instruments, I think that's really interesting. Um, for, for me, particularly, it's interesting because it, it suggests uh, or it requires really listening to local communities. It's listening to local communities and accepting that they're in the driving seat of decision making. So it, it, it implies and requires um, a giving up of space and of power, right, uh, as well as resources. Uh, that's one thing. The second thing is that it requires a shift also in how the donors um, perceive uh, what success uh, looks like and, and requirements in terms of impact, requirements in terms of monitoring and um, mistakes, uh, failures and, and learning. So um, my, my, I think my sort of simple response to that is that's the direction we need to go. Um, it means that you know, you're not going there saying, I'm going to work on health and I'm going to work on education. Because when you get to the community, the community might say, actually, that's not what we want you to work on. What we want, would like you to work on is this. And your organization needs to be flexible enough to look and say, this is what we're bringing to the community. How do we work together? But if donors are still very much asking for health indicators, education indicators in terms of uh, um, of implementation, then you have a bit of a discordance there that you have to um, sort out. But definitely something that I think uh, is the future um, for uh, international NGOs if we're going to survive and remain relevant for the changing politics at, uh, in developing countries. Uh, just quickly, um, on voice, I think that uh, it's not, I think it's not so easy and straightforward in terms of consolidation of voice. Because um, if you take Christian Aid, we're a faith-based organization. And in issues of voice, let's say in South Sudan, right, um, sometimes we have a voice because we are faith-based organiza uh, faith organization. If we consolidated with others, we might actually lose the access to the churches and to the religious institutions that need to be at the heart and center of mediation and peace building. Right. So I, I think that it's, um, it's not as uh, easy um, in terms of uh, consolidation. However, I think we really need to think about the tactics, the diplomacy, and the different strategies um, 
at country level as well at global level, really having discussions with the, whether it's care, whether it's plan, whoever it is, and saying, in this country, we are all in here together. Who has the best leverage and how can we put those resources behind that organization to do that voice? Or how do we take a back seat and really bring up uh, local voices? Because local agency, local movement, I mean, that is what is going to be there once we have left. So um, I think that there is, uh, again, it's about uh, um, the quality of collaboration. The last thing is freeing up re some resources. The, you know, the, I'm struggling with this uh, even within our own organization because as we look to think, how do we ring fence and ensure that the majority of the resources that we have are actually going to our local partners, because Christian Aid works through local partners. And, uh, and it is a struggle, because it means cutting jobs here. And you know, it's one thing to be theoretical about it, have a discussion, and everybody is in the room and saying, yes, this is the direction that we go. When it comes to implementation, it's not so easy. It's not so straightforward. Because when you talk about jobs in the UK, then it becomes a, a media circus right, um, all, all sorts of things. But I think for me, my key point in this conversation is that we no longer have an option. I think it's a watershed moment. The politics of development and humanitarian intervention is changed. Uh, if we don't change, we are out of, uh, out of the picture. Uh, so we need really to change ourselves and adapt and become more relevant uh, in uh, we've talked a lot about I think the instruments and then um, obviously the voice and advocacy I think uh, how we use the instrument is heavily uh, underfunded for where we sit uh, lots of um, ideation is happening in Somalia for a country that does pose a challenge to the sector lots of organizations iterating and trying to figure out what is the right level of model cost as well as uh, competitive space but I think um, yeah the learning bit is still huge and that is a great question in terms of evaluation how do we use our evaluations every program that I know every study that we have seen and as a consortia we see studies almost every two to three weeks a new study on this a new evaluation a new consultant I don't know where all that data goes mm -hmm. but I think the instruments are there uh, whether you are borrowing instruments from Google or even from the um, from the public sector in terms of what governments use in their innovation centers they're there we're just not using them to have these to sort of back up, back up all of these claims that we are making in front of you today um, uh, I happen to think uh, Simon even just to push you if it's not IRC, why wouldn't you want to merge with uh, one of your local partners? So I think, again, before we get to the who, it's a why. And, and, and I'm not convinced the why uh, is so strong in terms of um, partnering. Uh, we have so many consortia in Somalia. Those that are technical, those that are more practical. Uh, we're going into a space where we have a very strong government. And so coordination is really, really critical. Uh, at the end of the day, though, power consolidation is also very high. And we're seeing that the grand challenge that was in front of all of us in 2016 at the World Humanitarian Summit, that is the, the change that we needed. And I'm not sure, sure we are doing so well under uh, implementing under that challenge. Uh, before we move to consolidation, have we actually done well in terms of localization, participation, having more gender diversity, having more uh, partnerships that are different from the partners that you've had uh, in the past? One previous organization I worked with, I ended up finding that in the last 15 years, we haven't had 
uh, a new partner. We have maintained the same partners for 15 years. <coughs> that's not really about innovation, that's just laziness. Uh, that's that's, that's uh, no private entity, no uh, board, <coughs> no advisory steering committee would be okay with that. But there's a certain um, acceptance of the way that we work, and I think we have to, yes, have more grand challenges. We need to really push the uh, envelope in terms of what's going to get us there. I'm hoping that um, as more and more governments come into the space, as more and more private sector comes into our space, that real competition that we've been yearning for is going to be there. And it's not going to be just competition between two INGOs. It's just mm. going to be competition in terms of survival. Yeah. And I hope right. and to believe that the best will survive. But the key questions are on instruments. Instruments are there. On evaluation, we need to, that has to be the first test. We need to share those evaluations. It is really difficult to share a document among all the hundred NGOs that we manage. And it's not necessarily because we don't have the instruments. It's something, it's more political. It's yeah. deeply, deep-seated um, competition that doesn't necessarily lead to growth, but actually leads to fraction, leads to cutting out of space. Um, last but not least, uh, I think uh, the evaluations coming out on localizations, I would be really interested in how those change the conversation about who we are and how we show up and what the crisis of the future are going to mean for us. We need to diversify our models. It's not going to take one model to respond to the crisis of 2021 or after. It's going to be something that we haven't seen because it's just so uncertain. Um, for uh, last point here. For as many organizations that I've worked with, and i worked with many, the ones that I've seen that have been able to really truly live up to that nimble agility, diversity, culture, inclusion, have been the ones that can sort of play on two levels at once. So not looking for one model, but actually having three, four to deploy. When they have fewer resources than they did the year before, they can get small quite easily. When there is that funding that comes in because of a humanitarian crisis, they can get big, but they don't have to stay big. So they're continuing to shift and they manage change much more naturally than when they just need funding. There was a question to you, but we haven't completely yeah. addressed the question of the market failure, why we're not you know, learning from evaluations and really uh, driving a change that is the building of what we have learned from those. Um. I think some of us are learning, actually, <laughs> uh, from, from evaluations and what, what, what's coming back from the field. But I do think that there are um, some uh, divisions in the sector related to opinion about, um, you know, actually what, what's best according to what position you're coming from. Um, so, so I think there, there is um, quite a lot of learning, but it's just not consistent across the board. There is no co coherence within the sector um, uh, related to, to learning from uh, lessons from the field. Um, there was a question that came up, sorry to shift onto it, but just related to risk aversion. I'm very pleased that it came up online because that was the one I wanted to get to uh, earlier. Um, <clears throat> it will probably be no surprise to anybody in the, in the room that, that, that for me I look at um, a, a situation where there is already a precedent that um, industrial scale or big aid um, tends to be more risk averse. We're, we're already there, we've, we've seen that. Um, and that risk aversion can be multifaceted. It can be financial, it can be related to access, it can be related to activating rapid response mechanisms uh, quickly enough to actually get on with uh, spending the money and getting delivery done. Um, and as a result, what, what concerns me a little bit about that is that it drives a lot of organizations to make operational decisions based on two factors, which is in fact access and funding, rather than needs. Um, and and that, is, that is a major, uh, uh, quite bland operational uh, point related to risk. But I, I would add something else to it. I think that we also have a big aid risk paradox, in fact. 
Um, when I was a little boy, as I'm sure many people here, my mother always used to say to me, uh, don't put all your eggs in one basket. I think that's uh, a message that gets pushed through very, very heavily, and it's, uh, it's essentially a kind of early uh, lesson about um, investment risk. Um, I think that this big aid paradox essentially describes a situation where you've got big organizations that are very risk averse. And yet, ironically, uh, the risk aversion to take the willingness to, to operate in very insecure environments where there's challenge in access to make financial risks early on is also perhaps the single biggest risk to the sector as a whole. Because people will look at the sector and say, well, it's not timely. It's not working in the areas where there's the most severely affected people and the, the most vulnerable people. And it's not dealing with the access challenges that it needs to be uh, dealing with overall. So what is the sector doing? So the risk aversion is becoming in itself one of the very biggest risks for people to have confidence and trust that the humanitarian sector can deliver what it says it can deliver. I have three minutes. <coughs> I have to give the floor back to Matthew. So what I'm going to do is take three questions from the online audience that I think shift. I, I'm really sorry, colleagues, but we, we are running out of time. So we, you can stay and talk to the speakers afterwards. Um, but there are three questions that are more about the how. And I'll give you 30 seconds each you know, to sort of make your pitch um, after that. So there's a colleague from MasterCard, Louise Holden, who asks, is the drive to increase personal donations influencing smaller NGOs to increase their programs on the ground and open new offices to demonstrate where those donations are going? And so is this, you know, designing programs actually, you know, more of a problem? And could then, you know, sort of have merged NGOs enabling better outcomes through digital platforms and cash delivery? Um, Another question is from Simon Gill, who asks, from ODI, who asks, can we distinguish between the role of uh, INGOs as wholesalers with locally-based actors undertaking delivery on the ground? Um, and then this is actually a question to you, Matthew, but maybe the panel has views on that. Um, again, from um, Ariane from the Dutch Refugee Foundation on the merger between Save the Children and Merlin a few years ago that DFID, you know, had a role in uh, facilitating and looking back whether that has created significant efficiency, effectiveness, and innovation, um, and whether there is anything to learn from that. So 30 seconds each. Um, I'll start with Jonathan and we'll go in the reverse order this time. Um, on any of the... the, any of the one of the three? One of the three. Um, I'll go with wholesalers and um, field-level delivery. One of the things that concerns me a little bit is that there, there is a push of narrative, and it's quite noticeable since, um, since the grand bargain. Uh, came out. Um, I was with OCHA at the time that Grand Bargain was being developed and, and aware of a lot of the different discussions that were happening in the development of, of the Grand Bargain. And um, I think there's, there's a lot of narrative where people talk about working through national partners. Um, I understand why, and that is clearly a delivery model that is, is very effective and in many ways, when it's done the right way, it is certainly helping to change the power dynamics of, of, of the sector. One thing I, I would say, though, is there is also a concern for me that sometimes that can be done uh, in a way that is essentially transferring risk and transferring obligation with an oversight uh, in terms of decision-making and financial control. What I would like to see, and, and how we try and operate more, is instead of working through, it's working with. Um, so to have field presence in the same locations as our partners, to be working with our partners directly rather than uh, having a situation where you've essentially got your staff pulled back into capital cities or into regional uh, hubs and then 
subcontracting out a lot of work. I know that's not a, a popular word to use, but that, that comes across to me very often as, as how that actually ends up happening. I don't think that it's a, a helpful way of doing things. and I, I think it's, it's actually undermining a lot of the opportunity for smaller organizations, civil society organizations, national organizations, to be able to grow as they want to and as they should be given the opportunity to do. I think um, yeah, you've covered that very well on the issue of maybe it's the way organizations fundraise that may lend itself towards having smaller NGOs. No, I, I think that's more of just a matter of the times that we're in. Um, many people, young people, people that um, are giving charity uh, are leaning, looking to have more impact, are looking to make more of a personal connection with their organization or the organization that is serving their community. Uh, I think that's just more about uh, fundraising and digital fundraising that's just becoming more and more um, a big stakeholder in the work that we do. Um, I followed one um, amazing campaign in the U.S. that came out about eight or nine years ago. I don't know if many of you have heard, Giving Tuesday sort of took... Uh, uh, respond to Cyber Monday and all the uh, areas where it's more of the holiday commercialization of the times that we're in. So um, one was Cyber Monday, the other one was on um, Black Friday. So to contribute to sort of a better, a more giving, a more generous world, uh, Given Tuesday came about. And I think in about eight years, it revolutionized how nonprofits were able to access funding through online giving, uh, through pledging from different types of communities, different givers, not necessarily major donors, but smaller, more consistent, more personal connection. And I think over eight years, it managed <laughs> to put into the sector, at least in the U.S., um, something like seven, eight billion dollars. Uh, that's huge. That's just a matter of where we are in, in, in the communities that we're serving and, and who is a philanthropist and who's a donor. That's also changing. Um, local actors, international actors are also beginning to tap into that. Uh, I think it's out of necessity. It's to ensure that we can access different types of funding to stay alive, to survive, and to look at what are we doing with the mission that, that is in front of us. Um, I also believe, I don't have the hard data, but I also believe it's also to institutionalize a different kind of relationship with givers. They don't call their um, donors uh, donors, they call them givers, and I think it just, it sends out a different signal around how power relations happen. That when you're a giver, you're a little bit different than a donor because you're much more um, involved, you're much more engaged, you're seen as somebody who can really stay through the process and not necessarily just stay at a point where you're comfortable in terms of your risk sharing. So there's something about the relationship with a giver that is different than the relationship with a donor. Um, final <coughs> thing on this is um, these are the kinds of things that I think uh, is going to differentiate us in terms of whether you work in Philadelphia or Somalia. Can you financially stay alive? Can you tap into new markets? And I think the better we get uh, at that, uh, the more we're going to get to better, more impactful aid. Thank you. Okay, but I've got three quick comments then. I think my, my first one is consolidation is not necessarily going to result in impactful um, humanitarian or development uh, interventions on the ground. It's not necessarily going to meet the need that is there. My second point is that um, the diversity of civil society organizations in terms of size, in terms of nature, in terms of local, international, is really important for the health of our sector, especially at a time when there is shrinking civil society space and, you know, we are being threatened uh, in quite a number of countries. And then my last comment, uh, which I, I want to end on the trust conversation, which we didn't get a chance to really go into. Um, and so coming back here in the UK, uh, in terms of uh, as, as a British charity, I would like to work for a sector or for an organization 
where I can connect at the very individual level with uh, people in this country so that they feel and they know that they are giving to a cause, not just an organization, but to a cause uh, in sh with shared values and to a cause where they know I am actually supporting um, the change uh, in lifestyles of others. So for that, I think that's where the trust needs to be. I think the trust <coughs> is not about the brand. The trust is about the shared values. It's about coming to you because they, they can see a human face to the organization. And I think it's really important for us to land there. Thank you. Thank you so right. much. 15 seconds, yeah. So, so yeah, f f for me, the people-to-people -people thing, so I, com I completely agree with that. And I think maybe in five, five years' time, we might look back and think some of the things I've said and others have said on the panel is a bit silly because the disruption's coming anyway. Let's be clear to the great online point about, you know, d direct giving is happening, you know, the blockchain, the cryptocurrency stuff, a number of us are starting to, to pilot the ability to give directly. If we don't change... If we don't disrupt ourselves, we'll be, we will be that super tanker uh, g g going down. So it's, so it's happening inevitably. And just then really, really quickly on this um, point about the bigger organizations not in the most fragile places, Jonathan, I, it'd be great to have some evidence around that as well. I think the days, quite rightly, of smaller organizations being in those more fragile places and, and sort of well, not quite flying under the radar but operating with less scrutiny because they don't have the big brands, I think that's, I think that's absolutely changing as well because there's more ability to know what's going on. There's more emphasis on accountability and transparency. So I think that change is going to happen um, as well. Thank you so much, everyone, for you know a really interesting debate. It's very clear we have to change. This is something that you know our humanitarian policy group at ODI has been pushing for a long time. In the report that we published just before the World Humanitarian Summit that you mentioned before was entitled "Time to Let Go," and it was really an exhortation to let go of power and control and reimagine the ways in which we work. And it's work that you know Christina is continuing to lead on how we have to transform the way in which we operate. So these conversations will continue to happen and you know, we'll try and <coughs> provide more evidence. Clearly that was an element of a uh, no missing element from the debate. We need more evidence as to how we need to change. But with that, let me give the floor back to Matthew for your concluding remarks. It's been a very passionate and diverse debate. We'd be uh, really interested in your takes. Uh, thank you very much, Sarah, and, and thank you to a fantastic uh, set of panellists and questioners uh, for a really uh, vibrant debate. I, for one, have certainly learnt a lot, and it feels like everyone has as well, so thank you. So three big things that, that I would take away. First of all, let's start with the scale externally of the need. I think that has come through very, very clearly. Uh, the numbers of people still living in extreme poverty, the projections ahead for the scale of the humanitarian challenge, all of that requires us absolutely, collectively, to be at the top of our game. Uh, secondly, um, I'm now officially worried about the lack of collaboration uh, in the sector. Amanda, Amanda told me I should be, and, and uh, what Amanda asked me to do, I, I do. So I'm now officially worrying uh, about the lack of practical collaboration uh, between uh, NGOs operating in the same space, particularly in fragile environments. Uh, I'm sure there is more that we differed as a donor could do to incentivize that very practical collaboration before we get on to these bigger and tougher things like mergers and acquisitions and, and, and that type of consolidation. So we will go away uh, and, uh, uh, and ensure that we're doing that. 
And then the third really big thing is about ensuring efficiency and effectiveness about the, about the sector as a whole. I think that has come through loud and clear. What I personally take away is that this is much more about um, the international NGOs uh, and, and ensuring that, that those are sort of properly uh, streamlined and aligned um, and making sure that in whatever we do, we allow uh, those grassroots organizations to flourish, uh, particularly uh, in countries and regions where uh, their very existence is threatened. Um, I'm sure, again, there is more that, that DFID could do uh, to, to, to help uh, the sector adapt. I, I worry that if we just leave this to evolution and the market deciding, then probably it won't happen fast enough. And I think the really big threat to the sector as a whole is irrelevance. Uh, and I, um, uh, I, I, I strongly suspect that, um, that the danger of too much change, uh, too rapidly, um, uh, is, is, is highly unlikely to come to pass. Uh, and it's more likely, if the sector is what I think it is, uh, that there isn't enough change, that people stick with the status quo, and that people fail to get on uh, and adapt, particularly uh, with this dramatic technological uh, changes ahead. So I think the, the hashtag remake aid is absolutely right. We have got to remake aid uh, starting here. And thank you very much to the panel for some really great suggestions on how to do that. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. But that's it for now. Apologies to the colleagues that wanted to come in and I could bring in, but you can carry on the conversation. There is tea and coffee in the lounge and also apologies to the very many contributions online that I could bring in. But please join me in thanking Matthew, Simon, Amanda, Nusra and Jonathan. Great debate today. You really sparked a lot of you know, interesting conversations that I'm sure will continue for some time to come. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. <laughs>